0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Between the Lines with Ogo J, where we go between the lines and beyond the pages of your favorite books and mine. I think it's been a while since I included the tagline in my intro, but today we are going to talk about voting. But before we get into that, and I introduce the book that we will be referencing in today's episode, I wanted to do... A quick recap of our episode from two Thursdays ago. Let's talk about disenfranchisement. Uh, this was referencing The Yellow House, a memoir, a debut memoir by Sarah M. Room. So I didn't put up a crucial conversation question for this episode. Um, that's partially because I didn't want to. <laughs> and um, the other reason was because I was having a hard time thinking of a question and um, because it was a memoir. I was like, what are you going to do? Argue her story? Like this is someone's personal account. But uh, mostly because there was just not much there to argue about. It made a lot of sense to me. And if it didn't, let me know. (laughs) But I did read a really interesting article. Uh, It was an interview with Long Reads and Sarah M. Broom around the time that the book came out. And the interviewer asked her about um, her herself, Sarah M. Broom, not being into the, in the book or born until like a hundred pages into the book. And I think I mentioned this on the episode, but it was really, really brief. Um, and I didn't spend too much time thinking about it in depth. Um, cause that's not what the episode was really about, but the memoir, which is her story, her parents' story, Sarah Broom is not born until about a hundred pages in, which is about the halfway mark of the book. And it was, it was interesting because as I was reading it, like when I was first, reading the book and the first couple of like chapters or movements is what they're called in the book I was like I thought that I was like reading it wrong I was like am I did I miss when she was born but she actually did that intentionally and her reasoning was that she says in this interview this was actually done intentionally and she says um in the interview I was saying we don't just arrive to the earth and the story begins the story has already begun and um I, I just thought that was just very powerful how she described that because it's hard to <laughs> people ask me why I can get so passionate about these things that I'm talking about um f- or f- for one specific example which is not that related I was talking about like covid and our current administration's response to covid with some people some months ago and I was trying to explain why the response to COVID was disastrous in the States because it was, that was proved. I'm not about to sit here and explain why, but we know it was. And I was trying to explain just some of the breakdowns in in our infrastructure and, you know, how it'll cause, you know, certain people to not get the stimulus check or, you know, we saw like, you know, Kanye and a lot of other very rich people receive like loans Um, like PPP loans that were specifically for small business. So just like eras in an infrastructure that, that, you know, these relief packages in theory sound amazing, but you know, how much relief, relief are people really getting? And the person I was talking to, you know, I explained that I never got a stimulus check, um, I just never got one, which is really weird. If it was going off of the income that I thought it was going off of, I definitely qualified. Um, But I never got a stimulus check neither did my mom, I believe. But I was just explaining that. And and she goes, oh, well, did you need it? Then what's the problem? And I I got I was annoyed as fuck because it's just I don't know how to explain to people that you have to feel bad for other situations. I don't know how to explain that. We've had existing long lasting, you know, eras in our systems that have impacted people and we have to feel bad for people who might have needed it and didn't get it. In the book, in in Sarah Broom's book, we talk about all the different reliefs that were provided to people after Hurricane Katrina. One, we talked about Hurricane Betsy and, and what it really cost and what it was estimated to repair New Orleans after Hurricane Betsy and what they actually got. And then we talked about Hurricane Katrina and the mother's basically 12 year battle with getting her home um, or her home back through the Roads home program that was that was created. And um, it's just like when I when I read that line in that interview, it's like there's there's a story that predates when I was born. You know, there's a history in America that predates I was, when I was born. There's a history in America that predates when, you know, my mom came to this country. Um, and that matters. And, I, and to blindly or willingly ignore context, history, and real life stories because you're okay is just a shitty way to be. Like it's so annoying, like I don't know. I it's just it's just annoying. So, um, that's what I wanted to to talk about or use for the recap. Um, but yeah, I just thought that one line was so powerful. The story has always begun. Everything that's being fought for today, it has existed. That story has existed. And that that started. When that started predates all of us because it started hundreds of years ago. And just because it started a long time ago and you don't feel like looking up history, going back that far, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, And just because you were born after it doesn't mean and it it might affect or impact you differently. Doesn't mean it's not of importance and doesn't mean on a macro level it shouldn't be tackled. So, yeah, that's my little recap based on the yellow house in that article. I will be posting that interview in the show notes because I think it was a very interesting interview. So let's get into this week's episode. So like I mentioned, I wanted to talk about voting because the 2020 elections are underway and it is a lot. The ads, the debates, the fly... There's so much going on, so much, you know, that we're getting funneled into us right now. You can't even get onto any app without getting a vote 2020. Um, and I think that's really cool. I think the, the, how we're being mobilized to vote. Um, it's interesting. and <laughs> It can be talked about in, in many ways, but, you know, cool. The book that we're referencing for today's conversation is Our Time Is Now. Power, Purpose, and the Fight for a Fair America by none other than Stacey Abrams. So I haven't used a Stacey Abrams book, Stacey Abrams book on this podcast yet, but she was one of my earlier, um, meet the author Mondays and it's because her memoir, memoir really slash self-help, it can really be categorized as both, but lead from the outside, um, is is another um favorite memoir of mine i i have to stop saying that every every memoir is my favorite memoir but um i featured her on my meet the author monday because on top of being just an amazing um politician and writer but she also had like the fun fact was that um under the pen name selena montgomery she's actually an award-winning author of eight romantic suspense novels um and I thought that was really cool. We love to see Duality. Like, you know, she's very built out and respected career in politics. But, you know, who, she was back there making romantic suspense, 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 novels for years. Eight of them. Oh, and they won awards. So I just thought that was really cool. And that's why I made her my Meet the Author Monday um, that time. But Stacey Abrams was most known, or I don't want to say that, but she... Was made incredibly popular after the 2018 race for governor in Georgia against Brian Kemp. And this was a race that was marked by, you know, specific and proven voter suppression. And she actually never conceded that race. So usually, like, you know, when one person loses, they'll concede, the other person will win. And of course, Brian Kemp is governor, but she never conceded. And that's because in her mind, that is saying that the system that she, quote, lost under. um, That would be saying that, that system is OK. And it's not. And, you know, she went on to write. She wrote Lead from the Outsider, I think, right after that, 2018, But then she wrote Our Time Is Now, and it was published in June 2020, if I'm not mistaken. And that was to um, really to offer a blueprint of of sorts uh, to kind of tackle voter suppression, what we can do to tackle voter suppression, um, how we can empower citizens to vote and really take back, you know, this country. And, you know, I just love that idea, you know, the idea of taking back country because I, I really do think if anyone has the rights to this country like if, if anyone has rights to this country it is um indig- indigenous people and it was the indigenous people that were wiped out in order to build this country and then the African Americans that built this country one thing that I have noticed um in my personal experience that I find interesting is is whenever I do get into those conversations and people are trying to like tell me like oh voting isn't effective or voting doesn't work that's usually coming from African American people in my experience and I find that really interesting well I get where the mindset comes from like I get what drives that mindset and that's what I talk about a little bit in this episode but sometimes I almost feel like African Americans are like fooled out of like giving fooled into like giving up on this country and trying to dig deep into like African roots and and That's not necessarily bad, but like you're digging deep into a country that into a continent that you're so many degrees separated from that you don't even like if you're gonna if you're going to skip over, you know, the country that y'all built and try to dig deep into Africa. okay, let's talk about SARS in Nigeria. Let's talk about cobalt exploitation in Congo. Let's talk about female genital mutilation in Nambia. Let's talk about there is a world of problems in that continent across so many different countries. And y'all might as well have y'all have an easier time just getting on the polls and voting in the country that y'all ancestors built. And it's interesting how it's like this whole like back to Africa movement. Like, yeah, you know how many countries in that? What do you mean back to Africa? Where are you guys? What, where are you guys going back to? What do you guys? What are you guys going to try to find in this in this continent? You're going to go and you're going to find countries that have been exploited and countries that have been that have been um, stripped of their resources for hundreds of years. Y'all are not gonna find what y'all think you're looking for there. That King and Queen Hotep shit, what is that? And it's like, why give up on the country that you have specific rights to when literally all it would take would, would be mobilizing 100% of the Black able, able population to vote? Like, think about it. This country lives and thrives off of Black culture, off of the culture that. African-Americans created in this country. We have seen the power in numbers. We've seen the the movement and that African-Americans can ignite in this country. And it's just so crazy to me that the vote is where, you know, some people draw the line. Like a, a constitutional right. It's, it's wild to me that that's where some people draw the line. Um, but I digress. And it's really not to say like none of us are perfect. It's not saying that me as a Nigerian American and is somewhat better or whatever. I'm just trying to say there is a whole nother set of problems in Nigeria and the countries in Africa, a whole nother set of problems. It would take a whole set if if people, if black Americans really wanted to immerse themselves in African culture, as they call it, it would take so much it would take so much studying and learning, you know, how many different cultures in just Nigeria alone, you know, how many different tribes in just Nigeria alone, how many different languages are speak, are spoken in that country. It's, it just seems a little bit more time effective to take back this country and, and call it you alls like, you know, call it yours. Let me speak properly. But, you know, it's, it just makes a little bit more sense to me, but, you know, that's just how I see it. So like I, I digress. <laughs> let's get into today's episode so usually I will pull out a major theme or some major themes from a book and expand on them through conversation and discussion um for my episodes for this episode um since voting is so relevant because we are in the midst of the 2020 elections um I decided to do it a little bit differently. So those of you guys who have me on my personal, um, social media pages, so my personal, personal Instagram, my personal Twitter, um, know that I'm pretty vocal, especially about things that I am, I believe in. And I'm oftentimes getting into debates and arguments with people and, you know, hate it or love it. And I, I have gotten to an, a number of conversations, um, with people who specifically do not vote, trying to convince me why voting is ineffective. And I thought I would take those arguments, um, whether they're like educated arguments or not. Um, And that was so shady. I'm sorry. I, I decided to take those arguments and use this book to expand on those. So, or not expand on those. I guess I would be telling you guys why they're stupid or I have to stop being shady on this episode, but um, telling you guys why they don't make sense. So I'm tired, guys. So um, there's a couple that I want to tackle. So one was that one guy, and you'll notice that it's only men, only men who try to convince me that um, voting is ineffective. Do with that whatever you guys want to do, but only men. Um, but the first one Um, said that voting has been proven to be, proven? Proven to be ineffective. And people who voted back in the day um, know it was ineffective and they've given up on the vote. So that was one argument. The second was that um under all of the past like four presidents the hood has always been the hood y'all have seen that meme I hope have you guys seen that meme it's like a picture of the hood and I'll be like oh the hood under Obama the hood under Trump the hood under Bush the hood under, under Clinton that that one so <laughs> y'all know it um um, the hood has been the same under all of the presidents so those are the two that I'm, I'm I'm going to expand on and, and um, I'll give you guys a little bit more background around the conversations that I was having when these ideas um, were presented to me. Um, but let's just start there and see if I can get this episode to be under 45 minutes. So one is that the vote was ineffective, and I'm using this one specifically because when I was, when I was trying to explain to to the gentleman why that was wrong um why voting is not ineffective voted voter suppression just exists so what makes it look like voting is ineffective and and his argument was that nah like you know people back in the day you know they know that voting doesn't work because you know you vote you vote and nothing happens kind of almost alluding to like the hood the hood argument, but this gentleman was, was specifically talking about how, like, historically, historically, people have known that voting is ineffective, and that's why people don't vote, and I thought that was, put my volume down, because all my text messages, okay, well, y'all are gonna hear when I get text messages, because I can't put it down, but, um, I wanted to talk about that one first, because in the beginning of the book, Sarah Abrams is talking uh, about her grandparents. So Stacy Abrams speaks of the story of her grandparents, uh, Walter and Wilter Abrams. I think it is very cute that her grandmother's name is Wilter, and they called her Bill for short. And her grandparents lived in the deep south. Uh... They were probably born then, I would have to say, early 1900s, because their kids were born in the 1940s and 50s. So her grandparents were born early 1900s, uh, probably like 1920s, maybe the teens. Um, and they all lived in Mississippi, in like the deep south. So no surprise here, the parents weren't voting. The grandparents weren't voting. And uh, they talked about it. Um, they, They said that they were kind of, you know, less, they've been, they were quieter in the movement because they understood the consequences if they got caught and they had to, you know, focus on what was important, which was, you know, survival, you know, making sure that they can put food on the table. You have to like picture Mississippi, early 1900s, reconstruction started in like what 1860s. So slaves were freed and then they went into the period of reconstruction in in which the goal or the objective, air quotes, objective, um, was to integrate Black people, air quotes, integrate Black people into society. Um, We know the ending of slavery had a huge economic impact, especially on those in the South. And uh, during this period of reconstruction, we know that the loopholes that was used, um, to kind of, uh, continue having, you know, black people work for free labor were kind of like all of the, um, what do they call them? Is it vagrancy laws? All of the laws that were enacted, like you, you could have been sitting on the side of the street standing still, you get, and you got arrested early 1900s if you were black, um, being on the wrong side of the sidewalk, walking on the same sidewalk as a white person. If a police came up to you and you had no money on you, um, these are all reasons that you could have been arrested, arrested and jailed and then forced into indentured servitude, which was essentially slavery under a different name. So this is what uh, her grandparents experienced. They both have, you know, they both have had dogs, Um, leashed on them in crowds. They both have been water hosed. Um, And so they kind of were shied away from um, voting or, you know, being active in anything that was, um, you know, social justice oriented in this time period because they had to be for their survival. And their kids, though, who grew up in this, like, Jim Crow area, um, actually were, became big, like, agitators in the civil rights movement. You know, they were big activists, um, in the, in the civil rights movement. And her kids who grew up more in the, and they had them in the 40s, grew up in, like, the 60s, late 60s, you know, they protested, they registered people to vote, um, her grandmother Wilter recalls having to bail her teenage son out because he was arrested for registering voters. Just for registering voters, he was arrested. Um, they were like, you know, routinely harassed and interrogated by police um, because of their children's, you know, activism. And, you know, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came around. And they, they knew it was going to be something that was impl- implemented very slowly, but they had their fo- their first real chance to vote, and this is the grandparents, had their first real chance to vote in um, 1968 in Mississippi. So that was the first time they were going to vote. And she, the grandmother recalls being very, very afraid. You know, she says here, I'm afraid, Jim, I'm afraid of the dogs and the police. I don't want to vote. And, you know, the grandfather was super, you know, angry because they had all their kids who had done all this work. But he had to acknowledge that this was a real fear, fearing the war. It was a real fear that was rooted in real experience. Um, so it's currently 2020, 60 years ago, it was 1960. So this was less than 60 years ago, that the Voting Rights Act of 1965 came into fruition. If we're going to say historically people have known, that was his argument, historically people um, realized that voting was ineffective and that's why they don't vote anymore. The last 60 years, there was a real fear around, yes, voting, but just living in in society you know, pre 1960, 1965, you could have, as a black person, you could have gotten killed for something like registering to vote or wanting to vote. Definitely arrested. And then, you know, arrested police brutality didn't just start in the 20, in in 2020 or in 2000, in the 2000s. So you could be harassed, lose your job. You could, you know, lose your home you could the amount of things you could not just openly and freely do in the 1960s matters here because then it's not that her grandmother Wilter thought that voting wasn't ineffective or she gave up on the vote because it didn't work she was scared to vote and so were millions of others millions of others so You have to understand how incredibly difficult it was to mobilize voters around this time. Yes, people were trying to mobilize. Yes, the civil rights movement was ongoing. But that does not mean just because this popularized view that we have of the civil rights movement did not mean that things were accessible without the fear of death. You have to understand this was a very, very different time. So people didn't give up on their rights. People chose survival that was the more important thing and that makes sense thinking back to Jim Crow segregation post reconstruction area era and this trickled down you know this trickled down and and then we look at like 1965 when the voting rights act was passed you still have a bunch of people who were eligible to vote like the grandparents who were just too kind of paralyzed by that fear or that fear has already stopped them from believing that this is something that they can do and they don't they don't want to. So to say that the vote is ineffective, I feel like you're not considering the fact that um you're not considering what's limiting it. It's not ineffective because everyone is voting and then nothing happens. It's quote ineffective because it's very hard to mobilize everyone to vote against suppression at that time which was literal threats of death like people would have dogs unleashed on them by regular civilians if they were lining up to vote in like the 60s or prior you know like we said her son was arrested police brutality didn't start with Rodney King his son was if you're arrested in this time period there's a there's a myriad of things that can happen to you, a myriad of things that can go wrong. Easily, you could lose your life. So we have to understand that it wasn't, people weren't giving up in 1965. They were choosing life, which makes sense. And because we now have voting rights to act of 1965, we have the, small, the the younger age groups, the millennials, like her, her grandson, who are now mobilized and active, but there's a whole nother side of the population. The grandparents, they can vote still. Why don't they want to? Nothing has the vote itself has not failed them. The country has, so that was one part. But then Stacy Abrams goes on to talk about recently. This is like 2020 recently because this book came out in 2020. Um, her her younger sister. She has a younger sister, Janine. And they went out to go, um, at a restaurant with one of their friends. And her friend said that she had no intention on voting. And this is the, this is this year. And, um, she was just recounting stories like why she wouldn't vote. She's heard of people who had been sent to the wrong polling place. Um, and you know, then suddenly their registration just vanished. She said the process just seemed very suspicious and in the end her vote didn't matter. Um, She was saying that she saw a lot of malicious intent in the treatment of of people who could not, you know, afford gas, you know, for a round trip to the polls or had no available time off to fix these problems. So here we see the new age problem where we just have all of these real stories of, you know, people being denied provisional ballots or lines that are just around the block because they don't have electrical cords for voting machines. Um, you know, and what Stacey Abrams is trying to describe here is that it's, they're all voter suppression, but in the past it was, you know, dogs and cops with clubs And. um, And now what we're seeing as a suppressor here is policy, it's, you know, restrictive voter ID rules, it's, um, you know, all these policies that especially impact um, susceptible and vulnerable citizens. Uh, for example, that example around affording a round trip to the polls, some people like we're we know now um, and it might have been overturned, but in Texas, Harris County, the county is one of the largest counties in Texas, and they have one voting location in that whole county. So if someone is on their last dime and cannot afford gas to make it to that poll and then make it to work in the morning, guess what they're going to choose? Making it to work in the morning because they're going to choose survival in a different way. Um, if someone, um, we know that there are a lot of workers we've seen through COVID this idea of the essential worker. So people who even in the midst of a pandemic can't get off of work, are they getting off of work on election day? Are they going to be able to vote? And what are they going to choose? Survival. They're going to choose putting a meal on their kids' plates the same way that her grandparents chose putting a meal on their kids' plates and being able to, um, feed their kids. They chose that instead of risking their lives in a world that would, um, attack them essentially. And Stacey Abrams here is trying to prove that it's the same thing. It's the same suppression. It's not that people believe that, you know, it's, it's really not that a hundred percent of, of our community has voted and we have not seen real change. Our community continues to be, our vote continues to be suppressed. So we can't even get to a point of seeing what our democracy would look like if everyone could vote. Even voter registration in itself is voter suppression. These are all things that came into, um, Into fruition in order to find loopholes to keep certain people from voting. So let's go into that. So let's briefly, I want to briefly talk about some of the policies that were enacted to keep, you know, millions from voting. So briefly on the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was meant to restore and protect the voting rights at a federal level. And certain states and jurisdictions referred to as cover jurisdictions jurisdictions became accountable for discrimination. So the, it it was a section five under this law that required that any type, any time a covered jurisdiction, whether it's a city, county, or state attempted to change any election law practice or procedure, the U.S. Justice Department had to agree that it did not have a discriminatory effect or purpose. So this this law was specifically supposed to tackle this Jim Crow era, where all of these um, policies, especially these state-level policies, were actively suppressing the vote, um, actively oppressing people. You know, it was able to tack tackle you know poll taxes, liter literacy tests, and just these different obstacles that were put in place specifically for um, to hinder brown and black people from voting. And I remember. In high school history, we reviewed some of the literacy tests that were given to people who were trying to register to vote in the 1960s. My whole class failed that fucking test. These tests were created to not be passed. They would literally ask people in this literary, literacy test, literacy test, and mind you, you could vote at like 18. I think the, the age was, might have been younger, you know, in this time, but they would be asking people in this literacy test to recite entire laws, like entire laws. And we just saw, didn't we, just, aren't the um, Amy Coney Barrett, who is effectively trying to become the next um, Supreme Court judge, replacing Ruth Bader, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, couldn't even recite all the freedoms covered um, in our First Amendment rights. She couldn't even recite all five freedoms and regular citizens. And she is going up for one of the highest courts in the United States. And they were asking regular citizens to to recite entire laws on this literacy test. So these things that were literally created to just suppress laws, um, the Voting Rights Act was meant to tackle. And even up until like another decade later, you couldn't even get like, um, You couldn't even get multilingual ballots and you couldn't even get protection for translators who wanted to enter the booth with non-English speakers. That didn't even come until 10 years later. So we're in the 70s when people who didn't speak English or didn't speak good English couldn't even get a ballot they could read, couldn't even get a translator in them in, in the booths for them. So let's look at how the Voting Rights Act evolved. So this Section 5 specifically that um, outlined those states that have to um, go through the U.S. Department of Justice before before implementing changes to their state voting laws, that was extended five years into the 1970s. And then it was extended for um, another five to seven years. This took us into 1975. Um, and this also included protections for Hispanic, Asians and Native American citizens, because at one point, Native, Native Americans on reservation at reservations could not vote because they needed a physical address. And we know what we have done to and the attack that our U.S. government has had on Native American reservations. A lot of them don't have physical addresses and this Voting Right Act was expanded to um, include protections for this group of people. And then it got another 25-year extension in 1982, and now this is under President Ronald Reagan. But this this version included a process for these covered jurisdictions to bail out or be removed from that oversight of the act. So they, any state that was considered a covered jurisdiction. Could now bail out, or there was a process that they could now not be considered a covered, um, a covered jurisdiction. And you know, even until two thousand six, this this Voting Rights Act had support um, as late as two thousand six. it had bipartisan support. So the Voting Rights Act was supported widely by both Democrats and Republicans into two thousand six. What changed? Hmm. What happened in two thousand eight? but pearly white's black man had the audacity to run for president and his beautiful baddie of a wife, Michelle. Let's take, let's talk about the election of, um, the first black president, Barack Obama, Barack Obama's presidency had so much backlash. And mind you, this is going to go into that second argument. The hood was always the same. President Obama received so much backlash. There was conspiracies. Um, We know there was the whole birthers conversation. But really, really, what a lot of conservatives were afraid of was the spike in voters, because we know a lot of people came out to vote for Barack Obama, the participation of long dormant groups. And that was what scared conservatives because they were scared of how the the power structure would change with these new voters, us millennials, that had this confidence. And, you know, we all know, we all, we all watched President Obama's presidency. We know how he was slandered through the mud, through the mud by conservatives, by people on talk shows, right wing pundits, um, slandered here the combination of young voters voters of color and moderate and progressive whites roundly rejected republican talking points and rarely voted for their candidates but so many had not been active voters before obama the worry had been academic until the 2008 election so there was always a worry that existed that you know all these people who had not voted or these populations and groups of people who had never voted before were now coming out to vote in mass. And the Republicans didn't really know what to do with that because, yeah, in theory, you could say that millennials are going to grow up or and now be able to vote and they'd probably be more liberal. But it would, like they like she said, this worry had been academic. And it became, ooh, my voice cracked. But and it became very real in 2008. So let's look at how the GOP responded to this new information, all these new young voters. So, and this is kind of segueing into that second argument that the hood has always been the same. I might name the episode that the hood's still the same because <laughs> um, I hate that argument. But so in response, the GOP started an effort, um, to win over a lot of state legislators in gubernational um, elections in 2010 in order to control the 2011 redistricting process. So there was going to be a process in 2011. Obama became president in 2008. There was going to be a, a process in 2011 to do redistricting. And this would be, um, this is like how state legislators outline the geogra- geographic boundaries of voting districts at the congressional, state, and local levels. So we already know, and I'm not going to go too much into detail, that one of the main ways that um, votes were suppressed would be like these crazy, crazy, crazy mappings of of districts and voting districts. Okay, so the name is, is gerrymandering. So I did what people don't like to do when they don't know things and I googled it. But gerrymandering has been used since for hundreds of years, I won't say hundreds, maybe 80 to 100 years. Um, And this is kind of, it was used to increase the power of a political party. And it's the practice of setting boundaries of electoral districts to favor specific political interests within legislative bodies, often resulting in districts with convoluted, winding boundaries rather than compact areas. So in the United States... Redistricting takes place in each state about, about every 10 years, and this is so they can define their geographical boundaries um, within each state. And the resulting map affects the elections of the state's member of the U.S. House of Regist- Reg- Representatives and the state legislati- legislative bodies. But these, redist- these districts also define like polling places um, or, or yeah, how many polling places an area or a district gets. It says here, I pulled up an article on the Washington Post, but when one party controls the state's legislative bodies and governor's office, it is it is in a strong position to gerrymander district boundaries to advantage its side and to disadvantage its political opponents. Since 2010, detailed maps and high speed computing have facilitated gerrymandering by political parties in redistrict in the redistricting process in order to gain the control of the state legislation and congressional representation and to potentially maintain that control over several decades, even against shifting political changes in the state's population. So in 2011, that is when the redistricting process was going to take place. This is a couple of years um, into his first uh, presidency, his first term as president. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind that the re- redistrict- <laughs> redistricting um, is really for like the state level um, and the local level. And in 2010, the GOP shifted its effort from Focusing on because they already know okay, this guy's president, and we have a fear that he is going to bring along a lot of young voters who are going to want to change up how we're running this country. And that's why the GOP, instead of focusing on, well, they did smear this man's name, but they took their efforts to try to win state legislators and gubernational elections so they switched their focus to winning the more local elections because they had more power in them because they the these are the the state legislators are the ones who outline the boundaries of voting districts at the congressional state and local levels so they were able to sweep the republicans were able to sweep in the largest contingent of Republican legislators and leaders in history in 2011. Now, this is my problem. While we're all here talking about Obama couldn't save the fucking hood, how many of us were voting in these gubernational elections? How many of us have voted for our state and local representatives and our state and local legislators? And of course, If the whole entire GOP, the entire GOP was in 2011, 2010, 2011, were able to sweep in the largest, largest amount of Republican legislators in the history of our country. That was the that was the more important vote. And I'm not, you know... 2008 I was I was fucking 12 years old. So, you know, uh, I am not trying to place any specific blame especially if the, my audience of people I'm talking to were fucking 12 when Obama was first um, elected president. But that is this I'm trying to stress the the importance of understanding civics as a whole. There is we have a president, yes but there's a separation of powers. There's the three branches of the government. Like we learn these things so fucking early and each of the branches of the government have different jurisdictions, have different um, responsibilities, I should say. And once they were able to sweep these state legislators, that is when the state laws that were protecting voters started facing challenges. So at this point, The only thing that is protecting the vote at the state level is this Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that um, that um, required states and jurisdictions to be subject to federal oversight if they were considered a covered jurisdiction. So, yeah, we have Obama. He's the president in 2008. But within just a couple of years, we have now the most Republican legislators that we've seen in a, in a very long time um, in the whole history of our country. And this is when these these um, laws, the state laws that protected, protected voters began to face challenges. And then there was a landmark case. In 2013, I think that's when the U.S. Supreme Court um, released their decision, but Shelby County versus Holder. And this is an Alabama case. And they argued that racial hostility in voting rights had been vanquished. So preclearance to make to make a change to voting laws by state was no longer necessary. So it was 2013 when the Supreme Court issued their decision on Shelby County versus Holder, and they essentially sided with the state of Alabama in saying that um, racism, under the premise that racism had ended in the election practices, and so too must federal oversight. Wild claim. So this This landmark ruling effectively eliminated the requirements that states had um, to pre-clear voting changes. So in America, we know there are federal rights and we know there are states' rights. You know, states have a level of sovereignty over how they govern the people of that states. So now state legislators could go and, and pass their laws through their own courts and this just provided another avenue for voter suppression. So let's look at some of the things that took place right after this landmark ruling. So almost immediately, officials in, in certain in covered jurisdictions specifically um, began picking at the low hanging fruit. So they were moving to close polling places in minority communities and. Um, They were working on limiting early voting opportunities that allowed working class people to vote without missing work. Um, The 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 game, the long game here were including actions um, ranging from, you know, voter purges to restrictive voter ID requirements at certain polling places. This policy just cleared away for so many changes to happen in our voting districts, especially in areas where there were a large amount of young voters or voters of color, it just made it harder to vote. And essentially all of these core values that were put into place around the Voting Rights Act um, so that we can create an equal access to the ballot regardless of race, class, or partisanship, the Shelby versus, um, what's this motherfucker's name? Shelby County versus hold decision completely negated that and completely started to roll all of those things back. And she ended this chapter really, really beautifully. She says, voter suppression no longer announces itself with a document clearly labeled literacy test or poll tax. Instead, the attacks on voting rights feel like user error, error. It makes it, this attack on voting rights or voter suppression makes it look like it's us that are the problem. When in reality, it was intentionally set up to make it look like we're the problem. And then look at what she says after that. She said, when the system fails us, we can rail and try to force change. But if the problem seems individual, if the, tro- if the problem is individual, we are trained to hide our mistakes and ignore the concerns. The, def- the fight to defend the right to vote begins with understanding where we've been and knowing where we are now. Only then can we demand a fair fight and make it so. And essentially what she's saying is that these problems that the voter suppression has been made for made to make people, the individuals, you know, feel as though um, they're the problem. They're the error. They can't, they can't make it. They, they can't, you know, do this thing instead of realizing that, you know, it was set up so that we were unable to do it. But when we're thinking about it on the individual level, it's like a guilt and a shame thing. Like, and now she said, we're trained to hide our mistakes and ignore the concerns. We're essentially like, it's like cognitive dissonance, like proving to ourselves that, you know, you know, it's something worth hiding or something worth ignoring. And she's saying when we realize and and realize it is on a a systemic level, then we're able to more you know, in in a more comprehensive way, force change. So that was just the context I wanted to provide for those two uh, arguments that I was um, presented around why people don't vote. One, that voting is ineffective, um, and people historically have known that voting was ineff- ineffective. And then two, that the hood has been the same under all of our presidents. This shit is just not black and white. I'm sorry. You're not going to be able to go into uh, and vote for an election, get a Democrat president and the world will just be okay. Our, the whole system is fucked up. We know this. There is no other option. There is no other smart option but to press forward. And it's not even like hope, but being able to just use the opportunities as they come. In 2018, we saw a gigantic blue wave. We saw a number of minorities and millennials entering the Congress. We have a majority House right now. Um, You know, so there's opportunities there, but it it takes continual pressing forward to take the Senate. Um, It takes continual pressing forward to not only make sure, you know, Democrats are elected to all of these places, but to make sure you're pressing your representatives and pressing Democrats who have made promises to our community. It's not easy, but it's possible. And by being like, but to say like in your 20s, to be like in your 20s, be this young and be like, I don't vote because voting is ineffective. You only had how many elections that you're able to vote in. You've only been alive for how long? It's like, What Sarah M. Broome said in my recap, the story began before you. The story does not only start when you are born on this earth. The story began before you and it has never been easy. It was not easy for Wilter and Walter, Walter Abrams, but the circumstances are different now. Unfortunately, it was not going to take, you know, going into the, 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 the polls in 2008 and voting for Obama for the hood to be saved. I don't even know where people got that idea from. Did you take civics? There is so many branches and levels to passing a law. You can't. Do, it's just not possible unless you're involved or if we have progressive candidates at all levels, which means going out, researching and voting for these elections that we never hear of. In 2010, 2011, the GOP knew exactly where to go to 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 be able to reinforce racist voting districts. They went straight to the state legislators. They went straight to the gubernational elections in order to swing that, get the the Republican uh, majority there, and being able to now basically undo Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and allow states that have historic implications of racism, allowing those states to decide voting laws. And then look what that caused now. Harris County with one one ballot box. I believe a federal judge overturned that, but I have to double check. But that that's that's what is allowed to happen now. People, governors, if they're conservative governors who are scared of of a swing in their state can literally go in and just close polling locations in some areas. These are things that can happen from the governor's level, from the state's level, not the president, unfortunately. And this is 100% not me taking any blame off of the Democratic Party. Both parties, Democrats and Republicans, have failed the Black community. Both parties in different ways have failed the Black communities. Republicans by outwardly ignoring us. Democrats by appeasing to us with lies and then changing their minds. We have to hold these people accountable. President and all the way down to my local representative in this town that I live in. They have to be held accountable. And just because that is not easy to do, just because you cannot wrap your mind around that or because you believe that you need to be spoon-fed this knowledge does not mean that you can go around telling people that voting doesn't work. That's just a lazy man's argument. It's really just a lazy man's argument. So... (sighs) That's my argument for you guys today. Go read a book or something. Um, this is Our Time Is Now by Stacey Abrams. Um, and very moving work. She also wrote Lead from the Outside and um, a number of other books. If you go onto my page, and you sc- my podcast page, and you scroll down a little bit, um, you go ahead and see my Meet the Author. Um, you can see my meet the author post about her, that post that has some of her other books that she's written. Um, she's truly an inspirational politician, inspirational woman. And she's out here doing the work of, of thousands. So we love to see it. Um, and yeah, go vote, go vote. And if you don't, don't talk to me and follow me. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. I'm tired. It's almost midnight. All right. Bye guys.